A few years ago, Bono, the lead singer of the band U2, gave an interview to a French journalist. It was actually a series of interviews that he gave over the course of many months that ended up becoming a book entitled Bono in Conversation. Now, in addition to stories about U2's early years and his own childhood growing up, Bono was very candid about his Christian faith. Listen to this interchange. He tells the journalist, The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world, so that what we put out did not come back to us, and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. This is not John Calvin, okay? This is Bono. That's the point, he says. It should keep us humbled. It's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. The journalist replies, he says, that's a great idea. There's no denying it. Such great hope is wonderful, even though it's close to lunacy, in my view, he says. The journalist says, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, But Son of God, isn't that far-fetched? Bono answers, and bear with me, it's a long quote. No, it's not far-fetched. Look, the secular response to Christ always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously an interesting guy, had a lot of other great things to say along the lines of Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius, but actually Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You, you're a bit eccentric. We had John the Baptist already eating locusts and honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word, because if you do, we're going to have to crucify you. Bono goes on. What you're left with is this. Either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or he's a complete nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, that, to me, is far-fetched. Don't mention the M-word. Because if you do, we're going to have to crucify you. And they sent a squadron of Roman soldiers To start the process, verse 3 says. Jesus and his disciples have left Jerusalem. They've crossed the brook of Kidron and they've climbed up the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane. You know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus was there long enough to pray. Long enough for his disciples to fall asleep. Long enough to sweat drops of blood as he considers the cup of God's wrath that he will drink to rescue sinners. John speeds up the story. John goes right to the betrayal of Judas. 
Now, any time that we talk about Judas, I give you this warning. We have to be careful. Judas has worn the black hat in our imaginations for so long that we miss, that we risk missing the shock of Judas's betrayal. You and I know the story, so we're like, of course Judas is a bad guy. But for the disciples to see Judas, of all people, leading a squadron of Roman soldiers and temple guards into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, that would have been a shock. <laughs> Matthew? Oh, they could have believed it about Matthew. He was the tax collector, right? Matthew is a backslider. Of course Matthew's going to end up collaborating with the Romans again. But not Judas. Judas, the one who sat at the left hand of Jesus on the night of the Passover. That place of honor where Jesus could lean back to speak to him. Judas, who was trusted by Jesus with the money for the disciples to pay for their expenses. Judas, a man that these disciples had seen night and day for three years of ministry. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, a man that he had chosen, a man he had trained, a man he had done ministry with. But the real depth of Judas's betrayal isn't found in his history with Jesus. It's actually found in the moment of his betrayal. Look at verse 4. Whom do you seek? Jesus asks. Jesus of Nazareth, they reply. I am, Jesus answers. Now, I know that our English text tries to smooth out the Greek by providing that he, in verse 5, I am he. Literally, Jesus just says, I am. And when Moses, you remember, asked God in Exodus chapter 3 what name he should use to tell Israel who had sent him to rescue them, what does God say? He says, tell them, I am sent you. That's why Judas and the soldiers fall down. They were confronted by God himself. But they didn't stay down. They stood back up. They regained their footing, the text says. And they bound up the Lord of glory. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was also betrayed by the priests of the Most High God. Look at verse 12. In verse 12 and following, we read that Jesus is taken to the house of Annas. We read about Annas and his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And what's very interesting is that history tells us that Annas and all of his sons and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, each took a turn being the high priest. Annas apparently was the main one, but the Romans deposed him and set up Caiaphas, his son-in-law, in his place. 
Now, that's an unusual thing because under Mosaic law, the high priest is high priest until he dies. So what you have here is the power behind the throne. Annas is still enormously influential. And it's even, he's even called the high priest. When the officer hits Jesus, he says, how dare you speak to the high priest in this way? Even though he wasn't occupying that office at the time. Well, Annas had hastily pulled together a council of priests to interrogate Jesus. Is that what priests are supposed to do? No. In Numbers chapter 1, the Levites are given charge of the tabernacle, that place in the middle of the camp where God would dwell with his people. And the men of this tribe down through Israel's history were the priests and the high priests, the rulers and the elders of Israel. It was their job to ensure that the worship of God was protected That the place of God was kept safe. But when God put on flesh and tabernacled among us, the priests didn't guard him. They arrested him. And they interrogated him. Instead of protecting him and worshiping him, they questioned him and they slapped him and they bound him up and sent him to his death. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Jesus was betrayed by the priests of the Most High God. And Jesus was betrayed by his friend. Back in verse 10, we read that Peter tried to protect Jesus as the guards moved in to arrest him there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He drew his sword and in a brilliant move of swordsmanship, he would manage to cut off the right ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. We can fault Peter for being foolish. We can fault Peter for this misguided attempt to protect Jesus. But what you can't miss in this text is Peter's deep love for his friend. He's going to take on a Roman cohort. The language that's used here in chapter 18... This band of soldiers, verse 3. We don't know exactly how many that is, but the same word is used in other ancient sources to say 200 soldiers. Maybe it wasn't that many, but it could have been. 200 to 1. Peter was foolish. Peter was misguided, but Peter loved Jesus. But as the night wore on, Peter betrayed him. First at the door of the high priest's home, then at the fire as he tried to warm himself, and again when he was accosted by a man, a relative of the man that he had injured. Don't you belong to Jesus? 
Aren't you one of His disciples? And where Jesus confidently declared, I am, Peter again and again and again says, I am not. Peter betrayed Jesus in the very place that he had hoped to demonstrate his loyalty to Jesus. The same protective instinct that drove Peter to pull his sword, drove Peter into the house of the high priest. But then he stopped. He drew up short. He didn't go in with Jesus. He stayed with his enemies. The danger of a passage like John chapter 18 is that it's so familiar to us. It's so familiar that we sometimes miss the darkness. If you're reading this for the first time, it's impossible to see from the perspective of that night. It is impossible to see God at work. Put yourself on the ground in the garden. Do you see God at work there? Put yourself next to the fire in the courtyard. Is God at work there? Put yourself there in the house of the high priest as they slapped our Lord. Is God really at work there? It seems like the devil is winning victory after victory after victory. A trusted colleague betrays Jesus. The priests of God betray Jesus. His closest friend, the rock on which God promises to build His church, it crumbles. And Peter betrays Jesus. All is lost. There is no light. There is no hope. It seems like darkness has finally and forever won the day. Or so it seems. Let's go back to that interview with Bono as we conclude. He tells this journalist, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me, he says, that karma is at the heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes grace to upend it all. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your action, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. And he doesn't use the word stuff. <laughs> then the journalist interrupts him. He says, well, I'd be interested to hear more about that. Bono replies, that's between me and God. But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my final judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but he says, I'm holding out for grace. 
I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on myself. Friends, that is exactly what we see in these final moments before Jesus goes to the cross. In verse 8, he tells the soldiers, take me and let these men go. Remember, he prayed back in chapter 17, verse 12, that not one of his disciples would be lost. And he rebukes Peter in verse 11. He tells him, put away the sword. I won't be prevented from drinking the cup of my father's wrath. Why? To borrow Bono's words, so we wouldn't have to depend on ourselves. So we wouldn't have to drink the cup of God's judgment. A judgment we deserve. A judgment that we have earned. A judgment that would forever and always separate us from the love of God. Friends, the problem today is that even the best of us betray Jesus. We sell Him out for a spot at the table of power and influence. We condemn Him, shaking our fist to heaven when He fails to come through with an answer to prayer. We deny Him when the challenge of living for Him is too great a burden for us to bear. But instead of rejecting us, Instead of washing his hands of the whole thing. Instead of condemning us, he turns toward the cross and he says, that one too. I'm going to pay for that sin too. He stands in the place of those who have denied and rejected him. So that through his death and resurrection, he might never lose one of us. Even Jesus' enemies understood this principle in, in their own twisted way. Look at verse 14 again. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man to die for the people. You know, if I had to quibble with one thing of this remarkable interview, it would be this. Bono says he's holding out for grace. I would say it's actually grace that's holding on to us. Folks, God is not surprised. He's not surprised by our sin. He's not surprised by the suffering that overtakes us. He's not surprised by a world that is set against us. He is not surprised when institutions and structures fail. But there is no barrier. There is no barrier that can stop the work of God for us. Even in what seems like his greatest moment of weakness and powerlessness, the Son of God is at work to rescue and redeem sinners. And that's our hope. 
That's our confidence. And that's our joy. For this life and for the life to come. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, hold on to us. Betrayers all. Willing to deny and walk away at the slightest promise of warmth from another fire. Jesus, hold on to us so that we might know the forgiveness of our sins and the joy of resurrection power. Jesus, hold on to us so that the last day when we are presented before the Father, you can point and say, that one belongs to me. Hold on to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.